Hello, and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Dynek, and today we're talking about becoming all things to all people and the value behind different genres of fiction. Are there genres that we as Christians shouldn't write, that we shouldn't read? Keep listening, and let's find out together. Well, it's been another eventful week here as a writer for me, still making good progress on planning book four. And so this week, what I wanted to talk to you about is research. Now, I mentioned in an earlier episode that I started writing fantasy because I wanted to write something that I didn't have to research. And to a degree, you can do that. There's a lot of things that you can make up as you go along. Unfortunately, in today's market especially, you do still need to know what you're talking about when you have your characters going to war or suffering from poverty or lack of food or having to sleep out under the stars, readers are starting to be able to pick up when you have never spent a night outside of your home. So the cool thing, though, is that research can still be fun. If you're researching something that interests you, it can still be a fun thing to do. One of the things I wanted to do with this book, I already knew the main character. I wanted her to be a ranger of some sort, someone who could go out into the wild and survive and find her way from place to place without needing to carry a whole lot of gear with her. As a ranger, she needs to stay mobile, be able to live off the land, be able to find her way in areas where she might not have been before. And so, as I mentioned also in in last week's episode, I think, where you know you have a problem on your mind and as you kind of have it sitting maybe on like a middle burner, we won't say a back burner, but kind of not on the front of your mind, but also not you know, buried underneath all the rest of the clutter. A lot of times you're going through your life or your day, you'll hear something that you can pick up on and realize that this will help you solve your problem. This happened to me. I came across a book called The Lost Art of Reading Nature's Signs by Tristan Gooley. And I believe my wife and I were on our way back from Tar Hollow here in Ohio, where we'd been vacationing a couple years ago. And we just went into a bookshop and looking around, I saw this thing and I knew or I had a strong suspicion when I saw it that this might be what I was looking for. Um, it's something to read in order to give the main character of book four, her name is Averlyn, give her this background on how to do this sort of thing. And I picked it up, kind of read the back of it, read what it was about, and sure enough, this book is being perfect for it. And so one of the things I've been doing, part of my task list, is reading through that book. Now, the key here, this is where a lot of writers can go astray. This book I'm about to write is not supposed to be a fantasy retelling of the lost art of reading nature's signs. So as fascinating as a lot of this stuff is, and there's a lot of really, really interesting information in this book, I can't bring all of it over into book four. It'll just, it'll read like the book, only probably less interesting. And I'll lose my readers, I'll lose you guys if you pick this book up and read it, just burying them in all these details that they don't really care about. And so what I'm doing is, as I'm going through the book, I also already kind of have an idea of the plot overall main key points in my head. And so what I'm doing is when I when I read an interesting fact about things that we can deduce just from looking at, you know, wind and stars and the lay of the land and things like that as you're reading this, it may be really, really interesting, but I have to immediately think, how will this serve the plot? So that's helping me whittle down. I'm, I think, almost halfway through the book and I have like four or five things, keys that I'm like, I will use this particular clue and detail for the main character, for Averlyn to read or to see in nature, and it'll help her as she's trying to solve some issue of the plot. And so I'm not throwing just a bunch of random information in there for the sake of having random information and saying, look how cool this is. It is really cool, but I'm limiting it to things that, like I said, are actually going to serve the plot, serve the character, and will not overwhelm the reader. So like I said, so far I have six things across 
Like I said, I'm planning on 200,000 words. And two of the clues are actually going to come in kind of the same scene because they're both going to help inform the story. It's been really, really interesting going through this book. And there's a lot of stuff that you can figure out by reading Nature's Signs that I had no idea. Apparently, most people have no idea. That's why it's a lost art as he talks about it. So that's been a lot of fun. I got a couple other things in the works. I'll probably be rolling out over the next couple of weeks, either on my social media or here on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. This week, as I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, we're starting a sort of thematic series about the topic of individuality. Now, this is obviously a very popular topic in Western culture, maybe less so in Eastern culture or uh, maybe Hispanic culture even, where the community is a big thing. We'll probably get into some themes around that as this podcast goes on. But for this series, I want to talk about us as individuals. And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be taking a deep look into how this idea of, as Paul puts it, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father of all, how that manifests itself in individual and different ways in all of us. Even though we have this common background, how is it that we're still individual people? And then, of course, be looking at how the same task of storytelling. If we're all writers, or if most of us are writers who are listening to this, our job is to tell a story and tell it in a good way, hopefully an interesting way. But that can manifest itself in very, very different ways across uh, different writers. For this week, though, as I mentioned in the introduction, we're talking about a particular verse many of you may be familiar with. And it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Paul is writing and he says to the Corinthians, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Now there's a lot a lot, a lot to talk about in just these couple of verses. So let's just start working our way through and see what we can find. First, I wanted to set this in a little bit of context. At this point in this first book of Corinthians, Paul has just written to them about the topic of his freedom in Christ in chapter 8. Opening in chapter 9, he's writing to them, talking about he has this boast that though he has many rights as an apostle, he does not indulge in any of them. And he even uses some scripture to back this up. So it's a good thing to read if you have the time or when you have the time. But rather than indulging in these rights that he should be able to take things for free, take their, you know, if they donate to his ministry, he should be able to, to take some of that money and, and live off of it. But he decides not to do that. He makes that conscious choice. And rather, he offers the gospel for free so that no one can say he would not have been able to do what he does without them. He wants to show, in many times over and over, he wants to show his total reliance on Christ for all things. So when he gets to this point in these verses that we just read, uh, verses 19 through 23, he's getting into the idea that he could act a certain way based on what he knows of Christ's forgiveness and how to live out the kingdom of God here on earth. He does not have to act a certain way and in fact has the right not to, but instead he chooses to act this certain way or in certain ways in order to reach as many people as possible. Second thing I want us to notice in this passage is that he does not enter into sin in order to reach people. This is the danger sometimes when we eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners as Jesus did. If we aren't careful, we can enter into the same sin as those we eat with rather than drawing them closer to God. But in this verse, Paul gives no indication that he does this despite all the people he became like. And so it's important to remember that in each of these things, there's nothing sinful 
for instance, there's nothing sinful about being a slave. There is sin in being an enslaver, certainly. And there's enslavement that is not forcing people to work without their consent. You can think of emotional or intellectual enslavement to a person or an idea or a group of people. But there's no sin in being enslaved. It is, by most definitions, beyond your control if you're enslaved or not, especially if you don't know Christ. Only Christ and the truth he brings can set anyone truly free. Paul also says he became like a Jew, in this case simply meaning one who follows the law of Moses, who has not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. He's not obviously saying there's something inherently wrong with being a Jew. He's just trying to set up a contrast. But the interesting thing, again, to remember is that he became like a follower of the law, not one who actually follows the law. However, we do even see him follow a piece of the Jewish law in Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. At that time, he had returned to Jerusalem, and when he met with the apostles there, they said that there are people here thinking that you're going around telling people to break these rules that we know even as Christ followers were not supposed to break. So they said in order to kind of alleviate their concerns, they wanted him to take part in a Jewish purification ritual with four other men, which he did. But in contrast to the notion of becoming like one under the law, going back to our verses in 1 Corinthians, he says to those not having the law, he became as one not having the law, even though he is under the law of God. But again, it's that word became like, not that he became one not having the law, but became like one not having the law. This part he had worked out in chapter 8 of the book by recognizing that other gods and idols of the world are not actually real. They have no power here on earth, and so if he takes something that had been offered to a non-existent god and offered it instead to the real god, God's power over the earth and Paul's life would override. So Paul's desire to reach people for Christ would be a more powerful sacrifice than any ritual performed to a man-made god. So here again, he is not entering into sin by becoming lawless. He instead offers all to Christ and God, knowing it will be recognized and accepted. Which brings us to our third key in these several verses. The question is why he does these things. Is he just trying to be a people pleaser? Is he just trying to have everyone like him? Well, it says towards the end that no, he does not do it to be popular or to serve selfish gains, but solely for the purpose of reaching as many people as possible for Christ. To win by all means possible, at least some, and share in the blessings of the gospel. And I don't think he's just looking for blessing. Make sure to note that he says share. He wants to share in its blessings, not keeping them to himself, but bringing along whoever he can. In all this, we need to remember his earlier directive, which comes from um, chapter 8, I believe. Do not use your freedom to sin. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in a future episode. The main point I want to draw here instead is that if we think of Paul's life as a story, that he had become what we might consider a different person at different times of his story. Now, some might think this is duplicitous or hypocritical. And again, if he did all this to serve selfish gains, we would be right. When people act one way towards one person and a different way towards someone else, only for the purpose of serving themselves, we recognize that as being wrong. And we don't like attitudes like that. Instead, though, there was still a unifying theme, a goal outside himself that he served. His purpose and goal remained the same, despite acting different ways, manifesting, if you will, the message of the gospel into different styles in order to relate to people from many different backgrounds, beliefs, interests, and desires. And we as writers can do this too. Now, I'm not talking about our individual stories, at least not yet, but rather I want us to consider genres of fiction. I've occasionally come across the notion that Christians should not write or read fantasy. Actually, this past week, I saw a piece of information go out that people should not read Lord of the Rings because it opens the door for Satan. After all, fantasy is full of magic and demons and devil stuff, and we open ourselves to possession by evil, or at least falling into a love of evil things, and coming out all corrupted. Now, if we're honest, this is somewhat true. There is that temptation, and there can be the temptation 
to enter into these things, become enamored with it and enamored with the ideas of what a real world analogy might kind of promise us and fall away from God in that case. But what I don't believe is that anything will happen to us that we cannot control. If we slide into sin and the worship of idols and false gods through these different genres, it's because we choose to. At the end of the day, we choose to wander away from the truth and into the lie. So I myself have, at various times, backed away from reading certain things or listening to certain things because I did not yet have as good a grasp on the truth as I needed to defeat the temptation and opportunity to sin that various media does present. My point here is rather that there is nothing inherently sinful in reading certain things. This is where Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He put himself in the presence of the sin, but did not engage in it himself. Paul, too, I believe, did this. He was not sinless, we know that, only Jesus was. But he would not boast about the way he acted unless he believed it to be inherently right. And fantasy, though, is not the only genre some people oppose. What about romance or thriller or sci-fi with all its aliens and atheistic science? Hard-boiled mystery with sex and drugs and murder. I'm going to keep saying this throughout this episode to make sure we stay on track. If you personally, you who are listening to this right now, if you cannot read or write these things without falling into real-world sin, then it is your responsibility to stay away from it. You are the only one who can be responsible for your holiness, how much you set yourself apart from the lawlessness of the world and devote your actions to God. But just as Paul said in our devotion, you can dedicate your actions to God that other people have dedicated to idol worship, selfishness, and sensuality. So you may be thinking though, okay, I hear you saying this, but show me if it's in the Bible somewhere. And it is, maybe not directly, but indirectly. So let's say you enjoy reading fantasy like I do. Well, have you read parts of Daniel and Revelation? I mean, sure, they're describing real-world things, but in our last episode, I talked about how what I write in fantasy is intended to reflect real-world truths. So is it that much different? His way, John's way in Revelation of describing some of these real-world things sounds pretty fantastic. There's all sorts of dragons and multi-headed and horned beasts and things that, if you read word for word, now he's describing something that he doesn't know how to describe in the terms that he was familiar with in his day but it reads very much like fantasy. So is it really that different? Or maybe you want to read a thriller. Have you read about the love, betrayal, and tension of Esther? That's a good book to read. Post-apocalypse readings? Some of Revelation, again, certainly. But don't neglect Ezra and Nehemiah either in the Old Testament. We get distracted sometimes by the boring list of people and tribes and families, but at its core, each of these two books are about people desperately seeking a home in a ravaged wasteland, facing obstacles from renegade bands. It could totally be a plot of Mad Max. What about horror? Well, check out the book of Zephaniah. A couple friends of mine in a band called Album released a heavy metal album based on this book, and it's terrifying. I recommend the CD. It's really, really fun to listen to if you can handle heavy metal. I understand if you can't. But if you enjoy heavy metal at all, pick up this album. It is fantastic. And it really sheds a different light on that book of Zephaniah. So what about romance? Well, check out the book of Ruth or Genesis chapter 29 which has some really twisted stuff in romance there, to be sure. Again, that chapter is not really a description of here's the way to do it, but it's just relaying a true story or true history of two people seeking to get married. You could also read any of John's epistles. They are constantly talking about love. So maybe you're thinking, though, surely not erotica. That is definitely, that has to be going too far. And to be honest, a lot of it does. But have you read the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon? Just because it's not how we talk now or how some erotica reads now, keep in mind how many times the lover talks about his beloved's breasts. There is surely some erotica, maybe most of it, that takes it to a ridiculous level and to a point where we as Christians should not go. 
But that's what happens with any topic whenever we remove Christ from it and it's been offered instead to the false god of lust. This is exactly why we need Christians who are able to enter this space and redeem the topic for Christ. Can we not show an intimate, overwhelming, and erotic love between husband and wife and find a way to tie it to God, to those who do not yet believe in him, and who have no basis yet for rejecting the genre of erotica? Remember Paul's revelation that the two becoming one flesh and marriage is our natural physical image of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, I personally cannot write this genre because of my susceptibility to the sins surrounding that topic, but perhaps it's up to you to reach that audience. You may be sitting there thinking that I have just made your case, that rather than reading all these other fiction genres, we should just read the Bible. And maybe that's exactly what you need to do or what you should do, or even if it's just what you want to do, that's fine. What we're talking about here is reaching a people who do not know God, who do not know Christ, and who don't yet read the Bible. And what can we write for them that can give them an image of what we find in Scripture that is something that they will want to read? At least that is my whole purpose and intent with all the stories that I write. With that said, there are two key points around this that I want to develop for us as writers. First, for your own stories. Write what you feel comfortable with writing, what you enjoy writing, and what you believe and are convicted that God has called you and equipped you to write. There is a whole host of pitfalls around writing any genre. After all, our enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for those he may devour. And it's your responsibility to make yourself aware of those pitfalls around your genre and in your own life. Others may help you develop that list through their discernment, but don't let anyone convince you not to do what God has called you to do because of their own fears and pitfalls. I guess this actually applies to all Christians, not just writers. But be prepared to back away from something if you suddenly find yourself failing more than you succeed. I never attempted to write erotica, but when I was younger I tried reading some and... Yeah, I can't do it. Even some of the, the more graphic sex scenes in Tom Clancy and things like that, I have to stay away from because I understand the temptation it holds for me, that it may not hold for other people. And it may be that for a time you don't have an issue with it, but then something can change and all of a sudden you do have an issue with it and you find yourself falling into those temptations and not being able to escape, falling into the sin at the end of it. Anytime that happens, you need to go to God, ask him to help you through these issues. And if you feel it's resolved, you may try to return to it if you still have trouble with it, then back away again. And maybe there might be a whole season. Maybe at some point your relationship with Christ has developed to the point that you cannot write something that you used to write. You just can't write it anymore. And that's fine. That's okay to walk away from those things. And as we mentioned before, you need to define your audience. Who is it that you are trying to reach? What kind of readers are they? What might be things that they struggle with that might be standing between them and a relationship with God? And what can you do to chip away at that obstacle? Remember that Paul did what he did in order to spread the gospel and share in its blessing. How is your writing sharing the blessing of the gospel? It doesn't mean you need to have some sort of altar call at the end of your book, either for the characters or for the readers. You can if you feel called to do that. Remember, we may plant the seed or water it, but the harvest is up to God. It is enough, I believe, to help move people in the direction of Christ, whether or not an individual story or book actually brings them to him. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but don't let that be the overriding definition of what you're allowed to write or not. It might be enough for your story to prepare the ground so that another individual can plant a seed in that person. Out of this, we develop our second point. Don't criticize others for the genre they choose to write just because it's not what you choose to write. The sins that so easily entangle you may not entangle others, and so long as they are effective in reaching the audience they intend to, then the work they do for Christ will likely stand. 
We're going to develop this theme a lot more starting in next week's episode, but continuing throughout this thematic series. So let's leave it at this for now. We are not responsible for the actions of those we follow on Twitter or Facebook or what one or another author chooses to write. If we actually know them personally and we're able to enter into a genuine conversation with them as part of a mutual relationship of building one another up and spurring each other on toward love and good deeds, then we may have the right to speak to someone about what genre they write in. But it should always and only be because it seems to be harming them or their message of Christ, not just because we don't like the genre. I hope this episode has been helpful and has been able to speak to you in some way or another. Join me again next week as we look deeper at our stories and Christ's different messages to different churches. Until then, keep writing and keep the faith.